All right, welcome everyone to the Adherent Apologetics Show. Today, we're going to be talking all things miracles. Do miracles happen? What about these atheist objections to miracles? Today, I'm joined by Ken Fish, who knows a lot about this topic and is involved in all kinds of cool healing stuff. So thank you for joining me, Ken. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Good to be with you. Glad to have you. So before we get started, I'm curious, uh, with all this virus stuff going on right now, how has that affected you and your ministry? Um, well, I've been home like everyone pretty much has been for, I guess this is the, I've sort of lost count, it's either the seventh or the eighth week. Um, and it's caused cancellations of many, many of my trips and events. Um, we've moved a few of them to virtual, but uh, for the most part, I'm just home trying to catch up on life, which when you travel a lot, it's easy to fall behind. So even though it's hitting us financially, I'm kind of glad to have a bit of a respite to try and, you know, do things that have gone neglected for a long time. And I'm still catching up. I mean, even though it's been several weeks, it hasn't been enough. So I don't know if I ever would have caught up, but for COVID. So as they say, you know, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. And every dark cloud has a silver lining. Amen. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about like who you are, what you do, kind of like what Kingdom Fire Ministries is and kind of like, you know, things like that? Um, sure. I'm uh, I it's it, you know, I'm kind of a cross between some people call me an evangelist, although I don't I don't really view myself as that. I, I don't behave like a classic evangelist. I don't dress like one. I don't speak like one. Um, I do lead people to faith and I, you know, I have many people come to faith in my meetings each year, but, um, but I'm not what people kind of stereotypically and classically think of as an evangelist. Um, I do a lot of training with churches and um, uh, sometimes even outside of churches, but, but the primary groups that I work with tend to be, you know, Christian organizations, sometimes denominations or uh, they might be retreats or meetings of sorts like that. Um, and I myself, I, um, I came to faith young and I had, I guess I would call it a subsequent experience that really awakened my faith from being just more propositional, uh, meaning I accepted the propositions of Christianity as fact, but, but you know, it was very much up here. I had a second experience when I was a teenager that really made it come alive to me. And I've, you know, walked with Jesus uh, for many years since then. I don't even want to say how many it's been. I'm getting older. But um, anyway, I've walked with him since then. And I, uh, in my 20s, I went to seminary at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Um, I worked for a number of years with John Wimber who is now with the Lord, but he he's generally regarded as the founder of the Vineyard Movement. That's actually not quite exactly right. Another man founded it, but while it was still a very fledgling movement of six churches, he handed the reins of the movement over to John. He said, I think there's a greater anointing on you for leadership than there is on me, and you ought to be the one doing this role. And so John you know, took it from there. Um, Anyway, I, uh, I had a business career for a number of years. I have an MBA, and I spent a lot of years in large corporate environments, Fortune 500-type companies. And I, uh, I now do this uh, full-time. I have a couple of books that are in process. I've recently launched a ministry training school for those who are interested in learning more about what I'm doing and maybe can't come to a meeting right now. And um, we recently rebranded and changed our name from Kingdom Fire Ministries to Orbis Ministries. So if people were to try and look us up and go to the Kingdom Fire Ministries website, they'd be redirected to the Orbis page. But um, we're starting to use that new name now. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, that's kind of a sub summary of where we are and where we've come from. Yeah, thank you. So some people would maybe call themselves like a pastor or an apologist or an evangelist. Um, do you have like kind of like a title that you go by? And if so, like, what is it? No, I don't. In fact, I, it's kind of funny. I've had churches have me in. There's one church I'm thinking of in particular. And they, you know, they wanted to make up a poster or something that they were going to hang in their in their foyer, in their narthex. And uh, 
and so the, 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 I guess she was the executive assistant or something, secretary, whatever her title was. She contacted me and she said, so what do we call you? And I said, well, call me Ken, just don't call me late for dinner. <laughs> and she said, well, no, but what I mean is, are you evangelist Ken or are you prophet Ken or are you pastor Ken or are you apostle Ken? And I said, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you can call me what you like. And it really kind of flummoxed her. She didn't she didn't know what to do with an answer like that. But, you know, when I was working with John Wimber, he was, you know, he was more than a boss. He was a mentor. And many of his sayings and values are you know deeply embedded in me. And from time to time when I'm speaking, they just tumble out. But one of the things that John always used to say is that, you know, so many people are caught up in titles. They want to be apostle so and so or prophet somebody or other. And he'd say, you know, if you're an apostle, then you need to apost. In other words, turn it into a verb, not just a noun and a title. If you're a prophet, well, you better be prophesying and you better be accurate and, and decent at it, meaning your words come right. They're, you know, they're accurate if they deal with the future, um, if they deal with matters of the person's current life, what we would call a word of knowledge, then you know, they better be accurate that way. Um, if you're an evangelist, well, don't call yourself an evangelist unless you're you know, leading people to the Lord, etc. If you're a pastor, you better pass. That means you need to take care of people and shepherd their souls and help them to grow spiritually and grow up in Christ and character and personality. Um, and if you're a teacher, of course, and you would, you know, teach the word well and in consistent with the way it was originally written. Um, but, you know, so many times people want to put these titles on and it almost become, becomes a game of one upsmanship. And if you're kind of tuned into all this stuff, I remember years ago before we had, you know, internet, um, well, the government had it, but but people like us didn't have it. Uh, you know, there were magazines that everybody read. Now they just go to websites and, you know, get their stuff there. But in the backs of these magazines, there were all these ads. And I can remember really clearly in those days, there'd be, you know, evangelist so-and-so and now available for bookings and blah, 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 blah. And so anyway, around about 1989, 1990, the language of profit was reintroduced into the wider church. And uh, so suddenly all of these people who had had their adverts in the back of these magazines as evangelists so-and-so, I don't know who upgraded them, but they got an upgrade. Now they were prophet so-and-so because it was kind of widely viewed that prophet was better than evangelist. And then about 10 more years went by and around about the turn of this millennium, you know, so around maybe 2000-ish, um, a lot of those people who had upgraded to prophet had now upgraded to apostle. And so, you know, it, it's widely viewed that apostle ranks prophet and prophet ranks evangelist. And a lot of this is, is just fueling the carnality and ambition of, uh, of the human flesh, the soul, the unredeemed part of the soul. And, um, and you know, I, I think these are functional descriptions of who you are and what you do and kind of how you present or, or, or bring leadership into the body of Christ and, and probably... Um, prophets and apostles function more translocally than locally, but, but they usually have a local nexus that they're deeply wedded to. And evangelists could maybe be either, or they might stay close to home and just do things in their own area. They may travel widely, like say a Billy Graham and pastors and teachers. Now those people, we tend to view them as more localized. So there's a, there's a matter of geography involved in this, but there's also a matter of function. What is it that you, that you do? And, um, so I, I don't think these are meant to be titles. And so with that, I've always, again, following just what I learned from John, I don't put titles on myself. People have called me everything. All of those five that I named and more, <laughs> some of it not always kind. <laughs> um, so I, I'd like to say, call me Ken, just don't call me late for dinner. <laughs> well, that's good, Ken. So obviously we're talking about uh, some healing things as we keep going. So when you do sort of like a healing event, or I'm not exactly sure what, what you call it, um, to be said, um, what does it look like when you're doing one of these like healing things that you guys do? Um, well, I bring, usually bring out some well-trained dogs and rubber balls and the dogs can balance the balls on their nose. <laughs> and then I have them jump through rings and no, I'm kidding. But, you know, again, some people think of this as, uh, as it were a circus. So I'm, I'm saying what I'm saying to, you know, tongue in cheek, acknowledge that people sometimes view it that way. Um, I, I generally will have a service that it's fairly simple. We will start with some worship. 
Um, the length of that worship time will be somewhat dependent on what's happening in the room. You know, a lot of times, especially for people who've never been to something like this, it's a little hard even to give them a good feel for it. But a lot of times when we start worshiping, the spirit of God will come into the room and, and people who are spiritually sensitive or tuned in or whatever you want to say, they, they will they will notice that. And sometimes these can be very intense times of group singing where i mean literally just about everybody in the room is singing maybe the few at the back that are kind of you know hanging out maybe they're not but believe it or not people put down their phones and they stop texting and they you know they raise their hands they might get up out of their seats sometimes they kneel down on the floor they may lie out prostrate um, but they're they're engaging with god in worship that is both uh, in coming from their heart, but it's also physical to the extent that they're raising their hands or maybe clapping if the, you know, if the song is one that is more appropriate for that. Um, kneeling, laying down, uh, sometimes people break into tears because there's often an emotional response when God's spirit is moving. And, and I think for skeptics, for people who don't have any familiarity with this, it's, it's, quite, it's quite easy to become, um, well, a mocker really you know, somebody who pokes fun at it all and says well that's just emotionalism we don't do anything out of emotionalism i do nothing to pull heartstrings i do nothing to try to manipulate people into anything but when people are engaging with god sometimes they do have an emotional response so the worship will go for typically between 20 and 40 minutes and that's kind of a wide variation but it can be determined based on uh, how much time do we have for the service. It can be determined based on how drawn in are people feeling. And sometimes people don't want to stop the singing. They actually want to keep going. Um, and it can be determined on what the worship leader feels should be going on. And I, I tend not to be overly directive of worship leaders. I, if I've got a good one, I trust them and I let them follow the leading of the Lord. That's what worship leaders do. I've been a worship leader and I, I have a sense of that, but I, I know a lot of times people who lead services who are, you know, they're in my role. Sometimes they're very directive and, and almost controlling. And I don't want that to happen. I want God's spirit to have freedom to move as he will. And, and sometimes I would add um, in the midst of the worship, things will start to occur beyond people engaging with God and his spirit. Uh, sometimes we have people get healed right in the middle of the worship before anything else has even happened. I haven't even gotten up and said a word. But anyway, eventually the worship ends and we will transition to a teaching time. And, you know, the length of that teaching will be determined both by how much time I have, again, what's the length of the service, and also what's the material I'm presenting. If it's a new concept or it's something more complex, you almost have to build a basis or a platform for what you're about to teach. And so that almost of necessity makes that a longer message because you're, you're laying the foundation. So everybody's on the same page. Um, but I'll teach whatever it is that I'm going to teach. And then typically at the end of that, um, we'll have a ministry time. Now, again, sometimes in the middle of, of teaching, uh, the spirit of God will start moving. I can, I'm thinking of a meeting I held in uh, Western Australia. This would probably be five or six years ago. But right in the middle of the meeting, it's a pretty, pretty good-sized crowd. Someone stood up right in the middle of the room and just said, I've just been healed. Mm -hmm. So I just stopped preaching. I said, well, what have you been healed of? And I was something in the back, and I can't remember. As I recall, it may have had a, a sciatic-type uh, pain associated with it. And just in the middle of preaching, it had just left. And the person said, look, and so they were kind of hemmed in by all the chairs, but they climbed up on their chair and bent down and were touching their toes. So the entire room could see them. I didn't stage this. It was not a shill. It was, uh, it was nothing that I even suggested. I was in the middle of teaching, but God had healed the person. And then right immediately on the heels of that, there was a man sitting on the front row with his wife and three children, and he was paralyzed. And, and he was, I would have said, probably 35, 37 years old right in there. Um, and, but he was paralyzed. And, you know, they brought him in in a wheelchair. And he just got up out of his wheelchair and said, look at this. I've just been healed. And I, I didn't ask him, you know, were you totally paralyzed? Or, you know, the skeptical mind immediately wants to go and start to criticize. But he came in in a wheelchair and he said he was paralyzed. And his wife started weeping, which told me something authentic had happened. This wasn't just somebody you know having a moment and 
maybe trying to grandstand. Um, and then he started dancing with his three children. You know, they all kind of took hands and nothing elegant, but like if you were thinking ring around the rosy pocket full of posies, something like that. But they're all dancing kind of in a circle. And the wife just now she's bawling before she just had tears running down. her But now she's bawling. It was pretty clear from what had just happened that this was nothing that he was in the habit of doing with his children. And it was also pretty clear from the looks on the children's faces, this was nothing they'd done with their father anytime recently. And so later I interviewed him and I found out that he was in fact um, about 90% paralyzed. He'd had an early stroke and he had a little bit of mobility, but very, very little. And he had almost no feeling in his extremities and all of his feeling had come back and he was able to walk and he pushed his own wheelchair out of the building. And again, he was not a shill. He was no one that I'd ever met before. I didn't know who this guy was from Adam. But, or as they say in Australia, since I was in Australia, I didn't know him from a bar of soap. But, um, I mean, these things occur sometimes in the middle of preaching. We haven't even gotten to the ministry time. And then the ministry time will be whatever seems to be the Lord is leading. So sometimes I'll call out words of knowledge for particular conditions. Say the Lord is healing this and this, you know, um, come up and get healed or receive prayer anyway. Uh, other times I'll tell people to stand where they are. We'll pray for them in place without my ever touching them. Sometimes I'll have people around them lay hands on them. Uh, sometimes I'll have people come up as a crowd and we'll, you know, we'll have a, maybe a group of one type of condition, 20 people with sinus headaches. And we'll you know pray over them as a group, um, which might mean I never touch them. I you know, simply hold my hands up and pray over them. Other times maybe I go down the row and I put a hand on each one quickly. Sometimes I'll, I'll spend considerable time praying with individuals because their situation is such. And when I say situation, I don't merely mean the, uh, the particulars of their disease or sickness. It might be more than that. Um, it might be their mindset. It might be uh, that there are other complicating factors that are involved in whatever their, their disability is. Uh, so sometimes I will stay and pray with people quite late. I often have teams with me. So if I've got, you know, a, quite a few people that have a more involved need, um, I might ask some of the team members to start praying with them. And, you know, we might pray with people for 20, 30 minutes, an hour. I mean, it just kind of depends on what it takes to get them well. But um, anyway, when it's all done, we go home. And uh, yeah, the back end sometimes determines how much time we can put into that kind of prayer ministry. Um, it, you know, I would say a, a typical service might be, two hours to three hours. But when I was first doing this full time, I was younger. I had more energy. I hadn't, I wasn't doing hundreds of meetings a year. Um, it was not rare for me to have meetings that might last till three or four in the morning. Mm -hmm. People would just wait to receive prayer because so many people were getting healed. They were like, look, I've been struggling with this, whatever it is all this time. And if, if I can get healed, it's worth another hour or two of waiting. And if I'm tired tomorrow, I'll sleep in. So I'm trying to give you the broad strokes of what it looks like, but, but understand there is variability. Yeah. That's amazing stories. Um, so how would you just in a simple sense or in a broad, however you want to define it, how would you define a miracle? You know, to me, a miracle is different from healing. Now, there are miracles of healing. So if you think of a Venn diagram, you know, you've got kind of, I got to make sure I'm on the right camera right here. You got one circle, you got another circle. There's some place where the two circles overlap. So healings and miracles are different from each other for the most part. But then there are healing miracles. Mm -hmm. So healings are things that happen that you would normally expect the body to do, to take care of that problem, given the normal course of events. So an example would be, uh, you get a head cold, you would expect that in a few days, you'll feel better. All right. Uh, you fall down, you injure your knee, it's hurting badly. And we're going to make the assumption for what I'm saying right now, that it's not broken or sprained or, you know, anything like that. Um, and so now you, the person receives prayer and they are rapidly well. And by rapidly, I could mean everything from the very moment of prayer to a few minutes later, possibly an hour or two later, maybe the next morning they wake up and it's totally okay. 
Um, and, and let's also make the assumption that they fell down and it's been hurting for days already and doesn't seem to be getting better. So that would be a healing. And, and healings can come in many shapes and sizes. They can your heart, your kidneys, your, you know, your sore shoulder. I mean, there's a, there's a whole range of these things. But again, in the normal course, you would expect that something would happen. And so a healing in this sense is really an acceleration of a normal bodily process. Um, and it can be quite dramatic and eye-opening, but, um, but that's a healing. A miracle uh, on the other end of the you know, spectrum, so we've got healings. Wait, 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 where's my camera? We've got healings. We've got miracles. Uh, with that, um, a miracle is something different, and it really deals with something that we would never expect to happen. Uh, because it violates what we understand to be the laws of nature, maybe the laws of physics. And so an example would be when Jesus turned water into wine, or he walked on water, or he spoke to the wind and the waves and rebuked them and commanded them to be silent. And they, and they were. These are more what I think of as miracles. Another example is after his resurrection, they're in a locked room which you know implies you can't get in or out without someone letting you in or out or or if you have a key but but you don't just sort of waltz into a locked room there's something necessary to go through the solid matter that we call doors and walls and jesus goes apparently he just boof there he is well how did he get through the walls how did he get through the door no one let him in it's clear from the passages that speak of this that that was not happening so that would be a miracle. These things are miracles. And there are many others that are in the Bible. I'm just trying to give a few examples. Yeah. Um, go ahead. No, no, you can go. I was just, I was just, yeah, keep going. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, there, there are others that are, that are described in the Bible. Moses parts the Red Sea. I find that one particularly interesting because even though it's a miracle, you wouldn't expect a sea to, or any body of water to, you know, part such that the water is stacked up on either side, creating, I guess, a footpath or a channel. And then, you know, everyone walks through it on dry ground. That's unusual. But but that one wasn't an instantaneous miracle. Some of these other ones appear to have been essentially instantaneous. Uh, but it says that when Moses stretched out the rod of God, the staff that God had given him, when he stretched it out over the sea, it says God caused the wind to blow all night. So what is that, eight hours, 12 hours? That was a That was a miracle that took time to occur. But then they go across the Red Sea. In another case, we have Elisha, the prophet, and he's with what they call the company of the prophets. So a bunch of other prophets, and they're all palling around together and prophesying and ministering together. And they're cutting down a tree, and the one prophet, his axe head comes off and goes in the water. And he goes, oh, my gosh, my axe, you know, I've lost the head. And Elisha takes a, a stick of wood and just throws it into the water. He's not fishing for it. He just throws it on the surface of the water and the ax head floats to the surface. Well, whether that ax head was made of copper or iron or stone, whatever it was made of, it's heavier than water. It shouldn't be floating, but it did. And they were able to recover it. All of these things are miracles. And again, there are many more in the Bible. I'm just throwing out a random sampling, but the, none of these conform to what we understand to be the laws of nature. Now, healing miracles are specific healings that violate what we consider to be the laws of nature uh, that don't normally happen. And so an example of this would be, for example, if somebody um, has had surgery and has had an organ removed, it's literally no longer in their body. A surgeon cut it out, sewed up the, the incision and then some later time, that organ is recreated. And I'm going to say here, this isn't a, oh gosh, you know, something happened and stem cells were inserted and the organ regrew. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in a prayer encounter, a person who knows they don't have that organ, something happens and they'll, they'll usually say, oh, I, I feel like fatter or fuller. And then they go to the doctor subsequently and they do an MRI or a CAT scan and lo and behold, there's a new organ there that was not there. It is the creation de novo, ex nihilo is the word that theologians use, um, of something that was removed from the body. Or here's another example. Somebody has had something happen. It might have been surgical. Maybe it wasn't surgical. Maybe it was an accident. But their optic nerve was cut and their eye is still there maybe. But they can't see because there's no transmission of what's going on inside the eye the capture of light, the hitting of the retina, 
from the back of the eye through the optic nerve into the processing centers of the brain. The optic nerve has been severed or alternatively, maybe with hearing. If people have had a comparable kind of damage done with their inner ear or the auditory nerves. And yet when they receive prayer, suddenly something happens and, and we know surgically there's no, there's nothing there. There's no, it's like an electrical line that's, that's been removed and yet they're able to see. And here's the really wild one. Sometimes that optic nerve or auditory nerve, you can verify that it's been recreated and you can see it on a CAT scan or an MRI. And other times it's still not there and they can see or hear. It's still not there and they can see or hear. So it's, it's, it's quite variable the way this can go down. But, you know, we had one of these um, in Houston two summers ago. I was leading a pretty large meeting and a, a woman came up and I can't remember if I'd called her out of the crowd or maybe she just came forward for prayer. But what I do remember clearly is she couldn't hear in her right ear. And she was totally deaf and she had had whatever it was that had destroyed the parts of the inner ear, not all parts of the inner ear, but I remember specifically the cochlea was missing. And so um, she came forward for prayer and I prayed for her in front of the room. And again, I don't use a lot of drama and hype. I just put my hand on her. I was still on the microphone and I was talking to the crowd while I had my hand over her ear. And as I prayed over her, she, you know, she started saying to me, I can hear you. I can hear you. I can hear you. I said, cover your other ear. So, you know, she covered her left ear so that the only thing she could rely on was the right ear. And then, you know, I spoke to her in a normal tone of voice and she could hear that. And a skeptic would say, well, you know, your sound waves, you have a deep voice and they're penetrating through her hand. So I lowered my voice and I began to whisper. And I also turned my head so there'd be no chance that she might be reading lips. And, uh, and she could hear that. And so, you know, I got in closer and then I tried whispering directly into her ear, but not, not loud, a very quiet whisper. And, and she could hear that. And so we were convinced that something had occurred. Well, that woman, I've had subsequent contact with her. She's gone to her doctor and spoken with him and he's checked her ear out. And he has told her, you know, there's no possibility you can be hearing because you don't have any parts in your inner ear. The parts that were missing are still missing but she can hear perfectly out of that ear. Wow. So that's an example of what I'm talking about. We have other examples, but if I give, give examples for everything, we'll never get to the end of this podcast. So <laughs> uh, anyway, that, but that, that illustrates what I'm talking about. So we've described healings, which are, you know, more or less natural, but, but still very important. You know, if someone gets healed of cancer and they're in stage four and expected to die in the next day or two, and suddenly everything turns around and they're okay. That's a dramatic healing. Don't, don't mm -hmm. underestimate that. If someone has uh, MS, which potentially could go into remission, although usually it doesn't, um, and they come and they receive prayer and all their symptoms vanish, and five years later they still have no symptoms, well, that's a dramatic healing, um, even if it's not a miracle. On the other hand, if someone gets, if, if they have a miracle miracle, you know, money appears or they go through a wall, they walk on water or, you know, whatever. Okay. That's, that's its own thing that may or may not have anything to do with healing. And then we've got healing miracles. I'll tell you one other healing miracle story. This is, this is an older story. When I was a younger man in my twenties, um, I was in a church and, you know, we were, we were doing this, we were practicing healing. It was part of our culture and our, you know, our faith set. Um, and we had a church picnic. And so all the 20 somethings were playing ultimate Frisbee. And it was a, you know, it was about what you'd expect. Nothing dramatic, certainly not spiritual, mm -hmm. just playing Frisbee. And so we're in teams and we're, you know, we're playing ultimate Frisbee. And there was this one woman in the church. And I guess she must've been probably at that time, 23 or four years old, um, honors graduate from UC Davis, uh, school teacher, uh, quite well read and literate. And, and I'm, I'm saying all that because I'm, I'm, I'm giving you some markers on this woman that they're credibility markers. This is not just some you know, naive, fluffy person who believes anything that comes down the pike and is just a religious nutcase. Because I think a lot of times people believe, when we're talking about this, that people are susceptible. They can be influenced, you see. Mm -hmm. So we can't really take their testimony at face value. Um, anyway, so we were playing Ultimate Frisbee and 
I don't remember how exactly it happened, but, you know, she got hit in what amounted to a tackle, fell to the ground, and her, uh, her collarbone broke. And it was, it was right here. It was the left collarbone. And you could hear it. It was a sickening kind of a crunchy snap sound. And she fell to the ground and she was, you know, crying and, you know, screaming and all this. And, you know, if you kind of pulled the shirt down like so, you could see that the, the bone was, was jagged. And although it didn't breach the skin, and so medically speaking, it would not be what we term a compound fracture. It was a clear, unmistakable break. And everybody could tell. And so no one had cell phones in those days. It was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So someone ran to a, a you know, a phone booth or something. Does anyone even know what a phone booth is anymore? <laughs> I mean, I don't think I've ever seen one in my life. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. That's why I'm actually making the comment. So a phone booth, for those who've never seen one, was a little enclosure, not very big, might have been maybe two or three feet, you know, in each direction. And they'd have a pay phone in there and you'd put coins in the phone. And it would allow you to make a phone call. So someone ran to a phone booth and made a phone call, called the paramedics. We did have 911 in those days. And so, you know, pretty soon you hear, where, 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 the ambulance is coming. So anyway, we gathered around this woman who's lying there on the ground. And we put our hands on her gently. We began to pray for her broken collarbone. And before our eyes, we saw this. I mean, it was clearly uh, wrong. I mean, it was sticking up underneath the skin. We saw it just come and go like that. Mm. And now it was smooth. And the ambulance is still on its way. And so when the paramedics got there, they said, what's the problem? Well, she fell and we're pretty sure she broke her collarbone because the bone snapped. We heard it snap and it was you know, kind of akimbo. And so the paramedics, you know, knelt down and they're checking her and they said, well, there's nothing wrong with this woman. And she had no more pain. She's not screaming and writhing. So just as a safety precaution, they took her to the hospital and they, uh, you know, checked her out. And she came back afterward and she did not have a broken collarbone. Well, I don't know what you do with that. So because here's what people struggle with. There is no before x-ray to compare to the after x-ray there was just what we all saw with our eyes that everyone knew what we were looking at but there is no x-ray and so for a true and hardened skeptic they're going to say well absent that i won't believe it's a little bit like you know philip who said or, or thomas you know except i put my finger in the holes in his in his hands and feet and my hand in his side where the spear wound was i won't believe it's a little bit like that but you know I, and i've talked with that woman she's still a friend of my wife's and mine i've talked with her on and off about that healing and it was it was many decades ago i've talked with her about it since then at different times when we will get together there and every time she says to me you know the one thing i've never been able to figure out was what happened to me that day in that park when i got hit with that tackle when we were playing ultimate frisbee she remembers it she says i know my collarbone broke i heard it snap and i felt that raging pain and then everyone prayed for me and it just left. And then I went to the hospital and they could find nothing. She goes, I still can't explain that. That's a miracle of healing. Why? Because we know bones don't knit that quickly, especially fractures of that kind, which need to be reset and some kind of a cast or a sling or something. And a conveyance is the medical term for it is used in fixing that. And the typical timeline for that would be, uh, you know, what, six weeks, maybe eight weeks. Um, we know bones don't repair that rapidly. They just don't. So that one I put into the miracle of healing. Yes, bones do repair over time if they're set properly. If they're not, you might have to break them again. But, um, but to see that happen, that one, that one I put in the category of miracle of healing. Yeah, that's an amazing story. So if you were to like just take a guess, just a shot in the dark, how many healing miracles do you think you've been like a part of throughout like all your ministry now you're talking specifically about that third category of healing miracles yeah man i don't know i mean thousands many mm -hmm. thousands I, I i don't know i haven't kept a log but a typical year i might lead 
I don't know, 150 to 200 meetings in a year. And hardly a weekend goes by where I don't see at least one. I mean, sometimes I just see healings. Um, But there's hardly a weekend that goes by where I don't see at least one and often many. Um, So I don't know, a lot. I mean, more than easily hundreds, likely in the thousands. I've just never really stopped to count it. What I do know is I've prayed individually over the years since I first got into all of this. I mean, if you just sort of do the math, count the timeline, I'd sat down and did this with a friend one day. And and I've had other friends say, you should never give out numbers like this. People will never believe that this could even be possible. But, you know, I'm older than I look. And, uh, you know, I have myself laid hands on for healing at least 100,000 people in my lifetime. And, it, and it's it's actually well above that. But again, I've been advised, don't give the real number. No one would believe you do it. Uh, but, you know, some of my meetings have gone long and I've, I've prayed for lots and lots and lots of people in those meetings. And so, you know, the numbers just continue to climb. And sometimes I pray for people on mass. Other times I pray for them individually. But I've prayed for well over 100,000 people over the years. And, and if you think about it, it doesn't, the math is not, that doesn't really strain credibility or credulity at all. If you're leading a couple hundred meetings a year and you're doing that, and I've been doing this for decades, you know, just start totaling up the numbers. You realize, yeah, you could get to 100,000 people if you're just pretty consistent about it. And that's really what happens in a ministry, right? You, you start developing what you do and you do a lot of that. You might teach a lot. You, you might give a lot of prophetic words. You might do a lot of miracles. You might have some, you might be somebody gifted in the grace of miracles and weird and unusual things happen around you all the time. Well, you're in a miracle ministry, not a healing ministry now here, a miracle ministry. So, um, yeah, I've seen lots and lots and lots of this, but I do want to be clear. Not all healings are miracle healings. And, uh, and not every single person that I pray for is healed. There are some that don't get healed. Sometimes we go back and pray again and they do get healed. We pray a little more intentionally or with a little around what's going on. Uh, we're just persistent. Jesus encouraged us to be persistent in prayer. So that might be a reason that we uh, ultimately find the breakthrough we need. Uh, but to say that every person is healed the first time we pray for them, that would be a gross misstatement. So we have about 15 minutes left here. I want to ask you some more kind of like, uh, objections to kind of like what you're doing from maybe like an atheistic perspective. So one of the first things I'd like to ask you is a lot of atheists would say, Hey, if you have, as you're talking about thousands of um, probably faith miracle healing miracles that have happened, yeah. why don't we see the news filled with these stories or the medical journals filled with these stories? Um, isn't that what we'd expect if these things are happening? Um, a lot of people ask that question. It's not a rare question. Um, you know, I work with a doctor who is a professor of medicine at a major university here in the U.S. And when I get particularly noteworthy healings that are that are well documented, what I mean by well documented is we have the before case history and the people are willing to release their medical files to us. And then, you know, we have a we, we were able to show or, or document happened in the, and then after the fact, the healing. Uh, meaning pests came back or the attending physician later. I don't know how this occurred, but, you know, whatever the condition, it's no longer. And when we can get that, then I'll have that doctor investigate. And we are a library of case studies to get that standard of proof. I want to say we're talking about, you know, like beyond a reasonable doubt kind of thing that would stand up under scrutiny in a courtroom. That's harder to do than you might think specifically because you need before and after data. And a lot of times people, once they're healed, they just wander off. They don't bother going back to their doctor. They, they, they don't care. They don't need him or her. Um, other times uh, they don't really have their medical history from before. They just know what the diagnosis may have been. And they're, so it's harder to prove. So there's a, there's a wide body of these that, that would be excluded from the data set out of the gate because we don't have before and after. It doesn't mean it's not a valid healing. If somebody was paralyzed and they're walking, I mean, you can see that they're walking and you know that they weren't walking, but maybe the medical record isn't all that we would want it to be. And, you know, so for it to occur in the New England Journal of Medicine or something, it it really needs to be at that standard. 
The other thing that you run into is what I call the wall of skepticism or the wall of unbelief. And, you know, you see even Jesus having to deal with this. When that man who was born blind in John 9, when he is healed, this big controversy breaks out because everyone knows this is the guy who can't see, and yet he can see. And the Pharisees get involved. And they're like, give glory to God. Tell us how you got healed. He goes, well, that man, Jesus of Nazareth, he did it. And they're like, we know that man's a sinner. He couldn't possibly have done this. And so it turns into this big drama and they get his parents and they say, you know, is this your son? Yes. Well, how is it that he's seeing? We, you know, he was born blind. And they said, don't ask us, ask him. He's the one who was healed. So, you know, this is something that's, that's part of the way it rolls in the real world of healings. Um, and with that, there are some people and it, it's, it's very much a worldview problem. We are conditioned in the West because we have a scientific worldview that we, if we run into something like this, and you'll hear doctors say this from time to time, they'll just say something like, well, sometimes we just can't explain it. The body does amazing things. Or it's what we would call a spontaneous remission. We don't really have any language for it. We don't know why it occurs. It just does. And it's because they have a, a secularized worldview. They, they can't allow for the possibility that God could in any way be involved because they may not even believe in God themselves. So how would you acknowledge that God is real and that he you know, did this sort of thing? And other times they've just been so inculcated with a way of thinking, we can call it a mindset if you like, that it's very, very difficult for them to break out of that mindset and think about things we might say outside the box, the box that they've been taught to employ and so with that many times these things are completely dismissed and they just don't they don't get talked about there's another reason too you know some some time ago maybe i think this is about six years ago now i had a guy get healed in one of my meetings and he had ms he also had type 1 diabetes and he was also as a result of his ms three quarters blind in his left eye and in a very strange way, not like he 75% of the light wasn't coming through. It was that when he looked out of his eye, his watch face from 12 around to 9, he was completely black. But in, from 9 in that little quadrant, so over here, he could see something. And so th this was very well documented. And it was, it was being handled uh, through one of the major research uh, hospitals in the, in the eastern United States. And this man who came to the meeting, he had a medical dossier this thick that his, you can't see my hands there, about that thick. So what is that? About a foot thick of all the reports and labs and everything that had been done and his condition. And his doctors had told him he would likely die of the MS within the year. He was, he was paralyzed on the left side from the MS. Um, but he, he could walk with great difficulty with a stick by, you know, using his right side. As I said, he was three-quarters blind in the left eye. He had type 1 diabetes as a complicating factor. This was his condition. And he was, he was a man in his 30s. He was an a IT guy uh, by day and a pastor by night. So he was bivocational. And he had a wife and two kids. Um, he came to the meeting and he got healed. And it's a longer story, but I know we're short for time. So anyway, he got healed and he went back to his doctor. And they reran all the labs and all the tests that, that they had done. And at the end of that, they gave him a new dossier about this thing. And, uh, and they, you know, slid it across the desk. And the doctor said, according to these reports, you do not have MS. Uh, your vision is fine in your left eye. And your type 1 diabetes has been healed. And uh, so this guy wanted push the envelope so he says well doc and he brought his other medical file with him he said doc what am i supposed to do with this that you gave me i mean you told me that i have ms that i was going to die that i was blind that i you know my my diabetes and now you're telling me i don't have any of it what am i to do with this versus this i mean what what is that and the doctor said to him this is a quote he said i am not authorized to comment on any medical reports you may have previously received from this medical center mm -hmm. Um, what I can tell you is according to this report, meaning the thin one, the new one, uh, you do not have any of those conditions. So my friend kind of doubled down. He said, wait a minute, doc, I have this that you, what am I supposed to do with that? And when you're telling me with this, that I'm totally fine. 
And the doctor said, I'm not authorized to comment on anything you may have received from this medical center in the past. What was he doing? He'd obviously been coached by the lawyers and there was a fear of a lawsuit. It was a liability management thing. And so when you start talking about why are these not in medical journals, that doctor, like I said, this is one of the major research hospitals in the United States. But had that gotten out and turned into a lawsuit? So there is actually a perverse incentive is what we call it in economic theory. And it is an economic issue. There is a perverse incentive sometimes, not every time, sometimes for people who are the attending physicians or others, hospital administrators, you know, chemists, labs, pharmacists, whoever, um, to take it and sweep it under the rug. Yeah, that's an amazing story. Do you have time for one more question or do you need to wrap things up here? No, I'm good. One that said we only have a minute, so I was just trying to respect that. Oh, I mean, I'm good on time. I'm just trying to follow um, everything that's going on with you. So question here, one more amazing story that I just heard. But what about someone that would claim that, that oh, my gosh, I am sorry. I cannot talk right now. The miracles <laughs> happen in every religion. So, for example, you as a Christian are claiming all these miracles. But if we go to, let's just say, Saudi Arabia, there'd be a Muslim who would claim all these miracles happen or a Buddhist or a Hindu or all these different religious beliefs. Yeah. Um, the fact is, miracles do happen in every religion. So the question is, what's the origin of the miracle? Um, and and well, let's also just stipulate to this fact some of what passes as miracles or healings in any religion, including Christianity, is fallacious. People get excited. They think they were healed. They're making it up. There, there are charlatans and people who try to scam people for money, etc. That is also a thing. And it would be foolish to say otherwise. But what I'm suggesting is that not all of it is fallacious or erroneous. So in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. And he says this, and I'm going to read from it because I think it, it, there's value in just reading it out of the Bible. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments and listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. And so it goes on and says, you know, get rid of that prophet or dreamer of dreams. So that's Deuteronomy chapter 13. I read from verses one to five. The Bible itself, as far back at least as Moses, and I would argue even maybe before then, but at least that far back, um, so we're talking 3,500 years ago, contemplates that there will be people who seemingly have various powers and they will work miracles or healings or they'll have dreams or they'll give prophetic words that come to pass. There's a wide range of these supernatural phenomena, but whatever they may be, they, that's what they are. And Moses says, if that person points you at a God different from well, the, most people think that the Jews' God was named Yahweh, although the Jews don't utter that name. They consider it too holy to say. So the Jews just say Hashem, the name. So if they point you at anyone other than Hashem, uh, then you're not to listen to that person, even if they healed somebody, even if they had a prophetic word that came to pass. Because there is this other side of the world um, called the demonic. And in the realm of the demonic, there are times, if it suits him, that Satan and his demons will work wonders. They will do things that are supernatural. There's no denying that they occur, but that doesn't mean they're coming from the correct source. They're not coming from God. They're coming from the other side. And so they're counterfeit miracles. They are literally knockoffs of the real thing. Moses ran into this problem himself when he was bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt. When he went to Pharaoh, everybody uh, is usually familiar with the story of the 10 plagues that came on Egypt. The magicians of Egypt could copy the first three. Why? Because they had power, but they weren't serving Hashem. They were serving the Egyptian gods. But then, you know, as they say, it was time to separate the men from the boys. So Moses kept going and miracles four through 10. Well, that was totally beyond them. So, um, 
the, the, the scripture itself, Christianity itself, contemplates that there can be miracles that might occur in Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism, and yet they are false signs and lying wonders. They are designed to deceive and mislead people because they'll go, wow, something supernatural happened. So the other test that we put alongside of this is who are people pointing at? In everything I do, I make it really clear. I do this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And on the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. I'm quoting the tail end of the Nicene Creed. There's no question where I'm coming from. But with a lot of these other people, they might sort of weave and dodge. They might at some point mention the name of Jesus. But which Jesus do you mean, really? Or they may mention Buddha, or they may mention, you know, one of the spirits of the air or the water. They may be engaging in Wicca or, you know, one of the Hindu gods. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So we really need to be very clear about this, that there are things that will go on that are designed to mislead and deceive people. And I just want to say to anyone who may be listening, the one you want is the real one. It comes from Hashem and his son, Yeshua, Jesus. And with that, if, if you're not getting healing or, you know, miracles through that source, run away. Even if it's impressive, even if it intrigues you, it's, it's like when a cobra, you know, it's, it's sort of, it, it entices and enchants its prey and then it strikes. And there's always a higher price to pay later on. When people get involved in these miracles from the other side, initially it may seem really good. But guaranteed, down the road, you either pay the devil now or you pay him later. And if you pay him later, you're going to pay with interest. It's going to be a high price to pay to get out of that thing. And that's what you're going to end up with is a mess that you're going to need. You're going to need far more than getting healed. You're going to need your whole life straightened out. And that's more than even getting born again. You may well need deliverance from evil spirits. And so the answer to what you're saying is that, yes, there are miracles that come from other gods and other religions, but they are they're not the ones you want to follow. Mm, it's really good. Um, so this is about all the time we have. I thank you for your time. Uh, is there anything you want to say before we wrap everything up here? Uh, you know, if anybody wants to explore some of this a little bit further, they can go to my website. It's orbisministries.org, O-R-B-I-S. Orbis is a word that means under the world, uh, orbisministries.org. And if you happen to want to study this and learn more about it and really dive deeply, I've started an online school. <laughs> You can go watch a free course. You wouldn't have to pay anything to, to watch it. Uh, and then if you like it from there, you can sign up and enroll. And the way to do that is to go to Orbis SM. SM stands for School of Ministry, but it's just Orbis SM. So there are two S's there. OrbisSM.com. And there you go. It's awesome. So thank you for your time. This is Ken Fish, everyone. Uh, I learned a lot. It was really interesting to hear all those stories. So as for adhering apologetics and our stuff, you know what to do. We have all our links. If you are here for the first time, I'd love for you to subscribe. You can check us out on social media. You can support us on Patreon as we're trying to go part-time. Every dollar helps, but you know, no pressure. Um, and that's it. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it. All right. Good to be with you. Blessings. God bless.